Which brings us to today, Resurrection Sunday. Sounded really, really good this morning to hear all you guys singing and worshiping. And um, this day, as we've talked about before, is, is every day is holy. Every moment with the Lord is holy. And, I won't say but there, and this day is special. It really is. As we remember <clears throat> that Jesus Christ was crucified, was dead, was buried, was in the tomb, and then came out, not just hobbling and, hey, I made it, guys, thanks for waiting for me, but came out victoriously. And the scripture says he was shown to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection. God said yes eternally, and Jesus Christ came out of the tomb. And this was all according to the foreordained plan of God I don't know if they wrote it, said it. I don't think they had to write it in eternity past. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We are completely Trinitarian Christians. One God, three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And in eternity past, there was a covenant made amongst the Godhead that God would create and save human beings. It's a mystery. I don't understand that. Why? What? What? God was completely content and had perfect fellowship with Himself as Father, Son, and Spirit. And yet, in an effort—not an effort—in a uh, perfect way, chose to show His glory, His power, His wisdom, His knowledge, His love, and His grace by creating people watching them fall, and then redeeming them. And one of the most prominent stories in the narrative, in the, um, the play that is redemptive history, is the Passover. And all of the, the events leading up to the death, burial, resurrection of Christ revolve around the Jewish holiday of Passover. And what we're going to see today, and it just somehow, by luck, I guess, I don't believe that, by providence, the passage that we have to look at today revolves around Jesus and his men keeping the Passover meal. And that's why we're holding off on the Lord's table, because I think most of you all probably know the history and the background of the institution of this, what we call the Lord's table um, and that is my preferred term for it is the Lord's table. I think communion is a Roman Catholic thing. Um, that's just my take. It's not, that's not written in the Holy Word. But, um, and by the way, when we say Catholic church in the creed, it means universal. And if you look, that's a small c Catholic, which just means universal. Not Roman Catholic. We are not Roman Catholic. We are Protestant. We are ever protesting the Roman Catholic system. Um, so that's not us. Uh, and so as we <clears throat> prepare our hearts for the Lord's table this morning, we're going to see the first one this morning, and it fits so well with our theme this morning of resurrection and celebrating who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. So we, we come to Matthew chapter 26, 
And we're going to read verses 17 to 30. And by the grace of God, we'll work all the way through that, if you can believe it. Uh, those of you that have been here a while know that that's a big passage. How are you going to squeeze that into an hour? Well, who said I would? Um, so anyway, if you would, please stand. And uh, we'll read publicly this amazing, amazing passage that I hope blesses you as much as it has blessed me as I've mulled over it this week. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve, and as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Now we lean completely, we repose ourselves, rest ourselves on the power of your spirit to give us understanding, to convict us, to draw us, to teach us, to equip us, and to enable us to be doers of this word and not hearers only. And again, God, we pray that if there be those who are lost in darkness, who are dead in their sins this morning, that Holy Spirit, you would give resurrection life, new life to those people and that they would come to know you as their Lord, as their Savior. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Man, what a passage. Again, probably would have been better to do two or three messages here, but God has his ways. So, Verse 17. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? So, It's going to be important, and and Don read part of this this morning, but it's going to be important um, that we understand what the progression is for this holy feast and holiday that we call Passover, what it's like. So we're going to look, Old Testament, quickly, Leviticus 23, 4 through 8. As God is giving the law to Moses to give to the people, he says, These are the appointed feasts of the Lord, the holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at the time appointed for them. In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month, at twilight, is the Lord's Passover. And on the fifteenth day of the same month is the feast of unleavened bread to the Lord. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work, but you shall present a food offering to the Lord for seven days. On the seventh day is a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. So here in Leviticus, 
God is appointing this observance as a remembrance and a commemoration of the events of the Exodus, which we will see in Exodus 12 in a moment. And if you'll notice, the Passover meal is the first day of the feast. And that feast lasts seven days. It's a feast of unleavened bread. And it's really an incredible, if you've ever seen it or, or, or researched it, they, they scour their houses and their dwelling places for anything that has leaven in it. Because leaven is used to, to show us and to remind us and to be a sign of sin. <clears throat> so they scour their houses and find anything with leaven in it, crumbs, dust. They, they shake out their garments. They go into their pantries and vacuum everything out to make sure that there is nothing leavened among them. Because when they left Egypt, which we'll read in a second, they had to leave in a hurry. They didn't have time for their bread to rise. So they ate unleavened bread in remembrance of that. But Passover, the meal of Passover, which we'll look at pretty extensively this morning, was eaten the first day of that week. Okay, So it was the first thing that they did to kick this remembrance off. And, and like I said, it is in remembrance of what happened to the Hebrews when they were about to leave Egypt after having been in Egypt enslaved for over 400 years. They had come down, if you remember the story of Joshua, I'm sorry, Joseph, I always say Joshua instead of Joseph. Joseph had been sold into slavery and he came down, he became prime minister of Egypt after some unfortunate events. And then there was a famine in the land and his brothers came down, he revealed himself and he said, hey, you guys need to come down here, there's, there's more years of this famine. They went down to Egypt and there rose a pharaoh after Joseph, who didn't know Joseph, and he enslaved Uh, the Hebrews, and they were down there for 400 plus years. And then God heard their cries and said, I'm going to deliver them out of the hand of Egypt, out of Pharaoh's land. And that's what we see in the book of Exodus. Now, this is about to happen here in the book of Exodus. And there have been nine plagues poured out on the Egyptians. And God is about to execute the final plague, which will be the final deliverance for the Hebrews out of the land of Egypt. And that last plague is the death of the firstborn son. Okay, so I want to read this, and it's 28 verses, so get engaged with the narrative. Don't click off as we get four or five verses in. Okay, listen, this is what happened as this um, celebration of Passover was being instituted. And it's going to be very important that we understand this as we move forward into what we're looking at today. So... The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, now note that, tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household's too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish. And this lamb is very important. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month. So we've gone from the 10th day to the 14th day, four days where they're observing this lamb, probably getting attached to this lamb, by the way, the family was, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Now imagine that, twilight, all this bleating, all this bleeding. Then they shall take some of the blood 
and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses, for if anyone eats what is leaven from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel." On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days. But what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared for you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Now God's saying it before he does it, which that's how God operates. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. It's a pretty big deal, right? In the first month from the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwelling places, you shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the people of Israel went and did so, as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. Now, that's a whole lot of information, but I think it's very important, okay? I think it's important that we understand these things at the outset of our passage here in Matthew. So it's this Passover, this meal, this first observance, the first uh, part of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, this Passover meal that the disciples are asking Jesus about in our Matthew passage. They're asking where to prepare the Passover meal which would mark the beginning of this week-long celebration. And it was the pinnacle of their religious year, marking the mighty deliverance that God had wrought for the Jewish people back in Egypt. And their question, the disciples' question to Jesus is, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he answers them in verse 18. 
He, Jesus said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. So this is like when they were getting ready to to go into Jerusalem uh, a, a week before this, and Jesus told him about a donkey and the foal of a donkey that would be tied up at some guy's house. I wonder if it's the same guy, by the way. I wonder if he's going to take your donkey, I'm going to take your room. Jesus just says, go tell this guy, okay, a certain guy. I love that Matthew doesn't mention his name. I love that there's an obscurity here, and this guy's not immortalized as the guy that gave Jesus his room to celebrate the Passover. I think that's pretty neat. Uh, Doesn't mean anything, just I think it's neat. So... Jesus says, go and tell that guy that the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. It's just a matter of fact. He tells them to go to a guy's house and let that guy know that his place is where Jesus and his men would eat this Passover meal. And note that Jesus says at the beginning of his explanation that his time is at hand. Now, so many times through Matthew, things didn't happen because it wasn't his time. It wasn't his time. It wasn't his time. Now it's his time. His time is at hand, and that's a big deal. Jesus' time being at hand means that now this feast, this time, is going to see him fulfill his purpose for coming to the earth. This plan that was forged in eternity past, this plan that was foreshadowed through the feast of the Passover, is coming to completion. It's coming into realization. The real thing is here. All the shadows are going to disappear. It's happening. He's going to fulfill the purpose for coming to earth. He's going to lay down his life. He is going to be killed, crucified, to accomplish the redemption of God's people. Marked off since eternity past. His time is at hand. It is go time. This is not a drill. And this keeping the feast is kicking it all off. Now remember, the city of Jerusalem would have swollen to over 2 million people in the city. Finding a place big enough to keep this feast might have been a challenge. Not if you're Jesus. Go tell this guy I'm keeping it at his house. Okay, you come. You're the Lord. You do what you want to do. Okay. And when the Lord says he's keeping the feast at your house, you say, yes, sir. Verse 19. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. Now, I think that's pretty cool, too. The disciples go to that guy's house that Jesus told them to go to, and when they get there and explain to the guy, the guy whose house it is, that they're going to prepare the Passover meal to celebrate with Jesus, the guy says, okay. And then it says that they, the disciples, prepared the Passover. Now let's look at this Passover as quickly as we can to establish the context of what this Passover meal, what we call or have heard called the Seder, the Passover Seder, S-E-D-E-R. Because it consisted of a meal that was presented as a story. It retold the Exodus story, the Passover story that we just read in Exodus 12. And what they would do is they would eat Six foods and drink four cups. And I know you can't read that, but just just to give you a visual. And they would progress through the plate doing different things to recall and to remember different parts of the story. And the big deal that I really want you to see here is there's four cups of wine in this Passover meal. And it was progressively told. And as they would go through the story, these four different cups would be drank and remembered 
as they told the story. The first cup was the cup of sanctification. The second was the cup of salvation. The third was the cup of redemption. And the fourth was the cup of restoration. That's what we're calling them here. They weren't necessarily called that in the meal. But it was a progressive thing. Okay, They would work through the foods at different times. Uh, there were different parts of the story. They had kids around, and they would engage the kids by doing different things. And if you see there on the top, there's three pieces of bread, unleavened bread, unleavened because, remember, they didn't have time to let the leaven rise in their, um, in their uh, dough. And God said, eat unleavened bread for seven days. So there's three pieces of bread there. <clears throat> that middle piece they would take at the beginning of the feast, and they'd break it in half, and they would hide half of it. We'll talk about that in a minute, Okay. Uh, well, I guess in a few minutes. But keep in mind that this is what they're doing. Okay, This is the Passover feast that they're keeping. And Jesus would have been the leader who was telling the story. Now imagine that. Imagine being at a Passover meal where Jesus is telling the Passover story. <laughs> and they're all going, uh-huh. The, them not knowing it's him. It, this is all about him because it is all about him. But let's see how this plate and these cups play out in this Last Supper which is his last supper, the first Lord's table observance. So verse 20. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. So here's Jesus, the Son of God, reclined at table with his disciples. And again, that's how they would eat. There would be an oval-shaped table, and they would recline, laying with their head toward the table, left arm on the, more than likely left arm on the floor, so they can eat with their right hand. So they're reclined at table. That's what that means. And so Jesus is reclined at table with his disciples. At this point, all 12 of his disciples. Judas is there. Remember, Judas, having already started the gears turning, to find an opportunity to betray Jesus is here at this time. So Jesus... Um, starts this Passover meal with his 12 guys. Now look at verse 21. And as they were eating, he said, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. Now, keep in mind this meal that they're eating, which is really like kind of like roll our Thanksgiving and Christmas into one big holiday. That's, that's what's going on here. It's both somber and joyful. They're remembering the deliverance and, and the cruel suffering of, of the slaves and the slavery of the Hebrew people, and they're celebrating the deliverance. It's literally a high point of their year, a celebration of so many wonderful times and remembrances for them. They recall the original story. They recall as they've grown up all the times that they've done this, and there's a pattern. There's a story, and they all know it by heart and they're playing it out and as it happens and this is unfolding and they're like yeah this is what comes next and here at this feast as they're eating Jesus drops in something new into the feast and it's a bomb truly amen I say to you and you've seen that phrase several times from Jesus and Matthew one of you will betray me now let that sit in the air for a second or two Again, that's not a normal part of the Passover liturgy or observance. The script of the Passover Seder doesn't have a place where someone's supposed to say that. This is particular to this situation. And I'm sure their heads snapped up and looked at him. And Jesus is saying that one of the twelve, one of these twelve men reclined at table with him, partaking of this meal with him, will betray him. Now Judas knows this, right? Because he's already started that ball rolling. We talked about that last week. 
But imagine these other 11 guys. What? Look how they respond. Verse 22. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? Now, while this is tragic and awful for them, and I can't imagine what they were thinking or feeling, I'm actually pretty impressed with the disciples right here. Let me tell you why. They don't start pointing fingers at each other. They don't start saying, I bet it's so-and-so, or I bet it's so-and-so. I bet it's James and John because they wanted the right hand and the left hand. I bet. They don't do that here. They don't point fingers and tell why they bet it's not them. But instead, they're very sorrowful because they wonder, could it be me? I think that's pretty awesome. One after another, they ask him, is it I, Lord? They wonder if they will betray him. They worry that they might. They're sad that it could be them individually. And as hard as that is, I think this is a win for these guys. I'm impressed with them. And I, don't, I haven't said that much leading up to this point in the Gospel of Matthew because they've been buffoons, man. They've been hard-headed, like us, buffoons. And they will all abandon him before this night's over, before this whole thing unfolds. Before he's crucified, with Peter even denying him. And we'll talk about that, Lord willing, next week. So we need to remember, we all have the capacity to sell Jesus out when it's convenient for us. And these guys fear doing that here. But Jesus is about to identify his betrayer who is amongst them, one of the twelve. And he gives a startling statement in verse 23. He answered, Jesus answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. Now, this can be looked at or interpreted a few different ways. Um, All of them, all 12 of them, will dip their hands in the dish that Jesus is referring to. So it could be that he's saying that it's one of the 12. But he's already said that with his initial announcement that one of them will betray him. So it's my take that Jesus is going to point to a particular person here indicating that he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me is not just maybe one of you guys, but it's one specifically. Now, it's interesting to note that people sat at the Passover table in a particular order. The youngest would sit at the leader's right hand, and that would have been John. Okay, And we see this and some other good revealing details about this in John's account of this meal. Let's read that real quick. John 12, uh, 13, sorry, 21 through 30. Uh, After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, which, by the way, that's the way John always identifies himself, the disciple whom Jesus loved, that disciple was reclining at table at Jesus' side, which would put him there at the, uh, at the right hand, leaning against Jesus' breast. So Simon Peter motioned to him, motioned to John, Hey, John, to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, John, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So that's a little bit more specific than what Matthew recorded. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. 
Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him, Judas. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out. And it was night. So from this, we see John leaning back on Jesus' breast, which has to put him on Jesus' right-hand side. Now, we see Peter motioning to John to get some help in figuring out who Jesus is talking about. So Peter's close enough to John to get his attention, which very well could have put Peter across the table from John. And I found this diagram. I don't know if it... Yeah, I think you can see that. So you got the oval-shaped table, and you got the disciples all around. You see Jesus down here on the bottom left, John on the farthest side. There's John on his right side. But look who's on Jesus' left side. It's Judas. Okay? And again, this is not hardcore gospel written in stone. You see it plainly in the Bible. But there's a lot of inference that makes this look pretty accurate. Okay? And it shows Judas just to Jesus' left. Which, by the way, is supposed to be the place of the honored guest. At normal Passover meals. And here in John, we see that Judas would have been the first to receive the bread that Jesus dipped. Indicating that Judas was to be the betrayer. And verse 28 makes clear that all these guys were in close enough proximity to speak mostly privately so that nobody heard what was going on. So you could see how Jesus is having this, John leans back, Lord, who is it? Peter's like, let's figure it out. Hey, John, John, ask him. And so John leans back, who is it? And Jesus says, it's the one who I'm about to give this bread to. He dips the bread and he hands it directly to Judas on his left. Indicating, according to John, that Judas was to be the betrayer. So this could help explain what Matthew recorded in verse 23 about he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. And Jesus gives a little bit more detail about this betrayer and it's a really bleak picture in Matthew 26, 24. The Son of Man goes as it, is written, as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Jesus makes a couple of things clear here. He will die, Jesus will die, in just exactly the prescribed way. Again, there's been a plan from eternity past. The Son of Man goes as it is written of Him. And don't miss that. Again, this is all according to the perfect plan of God, written in eternity past. And then the second thing that Jesus makes clear, the one who betrays Him is in for a bad eternity future. But woe, Jesus says, to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. This shows that the betrayal was all Judas's responsibility. He wasn't a puppet. Judas made a choice. Judas sinned. And since it was his choice, since it was his sin, it would have been better for him if he had not been born. This pretty much rules out any chance that he turned to the future for sinners is just a quick destruction or annihilation. No, eternity will play out very badly for Judas and all those sinners who serve themselves instead of keeping the commandments of God. It would be better if they hadn't been born. And now Judas replies knowing what he's planning to, to do. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You've said so. 
So Jesus says it will be the one who dipped with him. John told us that Jesus gives the dipped morsel to Judas. So Judas looks at Jesus and asks, rather unnecessarily it would seem, Is it I, Rabbi? And note that he calls Jesus what? Not Lord. Not Jesus. He calls him Rabbi. Which is the same thing the unbelievers have called him all throughout his ministry. And I'm not sure that he was thinking or feeling uh, and fully cognizant of what was going on. But as the morsel is handed to Judas, he gets his clarity. Not that he really needed it because Jesus answered, you've said so. And again, that's a little bit ambiguous sounding. But Jesus is not denying that it is in fact Judas who will betray him. And that's the last we hear of Judas in our passage today. John records that Satan enters into him. And then he leaves. He goes out into the night to do what he's doing. And so now the passage turns to the remainder of the meal, which is our template for the Lord's table. And I think it's pretty interesting that the Lord's table didn't include Judas. That this that we partake of, Judas wasn't there. Starting in verse 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread. And after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body. So now we find that the meal's going on, Judas having gone from the party. So now as they're eating the Passover meal, they're going through that plate and that story, Jesus took bread and after blessing it. Now, this is the neat part. This is a pretty neat part of the Passover Seder. I mentioned the broken middle piece of matzah or bread that would have been the afikoman is what they called it. And what they would do, they would take that middle piece of bread, break it in half, and hide it. And then they would send the kids at this point of the meal to go find it. And whatever kid found it got a prize or a present. And they would bring it back to the master or the leader of the feast, and he would start to break off pieces of it and give it to everybody. So that's what's going on here when Jesus is breaking this bread. So Jesus takes the afikoman, that broken, hidden piece of bread that's been brought back to him, and after blessing it, breaks it and gives a piece to each disciple. Again, minus Judas, remember. And he says, take, eat, this is my body. Now, we've heard that so many times. It's just kind of like, yeah, take, eat, this is my body, this is what we do. Those little wafer cracker things, i got to get it chewed up before I get my juice because I... And then, like, if you're doing the thing up here, you got to swallow it all before you start to talk again or you're going to get choked. But Jesus takes, again, this story that's been told for thousands of years, and as, they, as he breaks off these pieces of matzah, he says, Take, eat, this is my body. And again, this is new. These folks had never heard this before. Nobody had ever said this at any other Passover Seder they've ever been to before. Take, eat, this is my body. And again, we've heard it so many times, yeah, yeah, but they had never heard it before. And Jesus is clearly equating himself with the Passover lamb because when that afikamen was broken into pieces, they were to eat it in remembrance of the lamb that was slain so that they could have this feast and so that God would pass over those folks in Egypt and not take their firstborn son. So Jesus says, take and eat. This that you do to remember the lamb is my body. This bit of bread is his body. 
I am the Passover lamb, Jesus says. I am the sacrifice that diverts the wrath of God away from the people of God. It is my body that will be broken. It is my life that will be taken in place of the children of Israel, the true Israel, the Israel of God. As you chew on this bit of bread, know that it represents my body, which will be broken into bits and distributed to all who partake of this true feast. Jesus had said earlier in his life in John 6 that his flesh is true food. And that is realized here. Take, eat. This is my body. But he hadn't done yet. Verses 27 and 28. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now, wow, again, we take this cup, we hear these words, and we've heard it, and we've heard it, and we've heard it, and it means nothing to us so many times. And I'm not beating you up for that. It's just, it's the human condition. Now, this cup would have been the third cup in the feast. It's the cup of redemption that we saw in our earlier graphic. In a normal Seder, after this cup was partaken of, according to authors Kevin Howard and Marv Rosenthal in their book, The Feasts of the Lord, a child would be sent to the front door in hopes of welcoming the return of the prophet Elijah, who was seen as the forerunner to the Messiah. The participants would do this. They would go to the front door hoping it it would result in the coming of the Messiah, which Elijah was a forerunner to. And here, Jesus, the Messiah, who had already come and who was in their midst, says that this cup of redemption is being drank as a partaking in a covenant. He, the Messiah, had come. He, the Messiah, is there. And he's establishing his covenant with his people by pouring out his blood for their forgiveness. Now, Elijah being at the front door would have been pretty cool for sure. But this is much better. Now, we've said many times in our trek through Matthew that the Jews were looking for a military, kingly Messiah and they missed Jesus' true goal as a suffering servant. And here, with his 11 men, Jesus institutes this new covenant, which we say again and we don't think about what that means. And this new covenant is so much more and so much better than a military coup. He announces that his coming death with the shedding of his blood would forgive his people for their sins, therefore clearing the way for people to approach God on a justified plane. Jesus' blood would be shed instead of a lamb's blood, and Jesus' blood would once for all be sufficient to pay the penalty for the sins of the people of God. God would bless His people with access into His forever kingdom by removing their sins from them, covering them with the blood of His own Son, not by overthrowing a governmental leader. And this cup of redemption would be partaken of by those 11 men that night, setting the pattern for all who would be saved after. For this is my blood of the covenant, Jesus said, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. It is a better covenant. This cup of redemption, drank for thousands of years by faithful Jews everywhere, was foretelling a coming Redeemer who would pour out His own blood like wine so His people could be brought to Him and forgiven for their sins. And Jesus wasn't going to let these 11 guys miss the significance of all of this going on right around them. 
And then he ends the celebration in verse 29, and actually he ends it a little early. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Jesus says that he will not drink wine again until that day when he drinks it new with these guys, his men, his people, in his Father's kingdom. He's saying that the cup of redemption would be the last wine he drinks until all things are final and the, and the kingdom of God is realized finally and fully. And what a statement, both sad and hopeful. Not until then. How long until then? Now they asked that question back in Matthew 24, which set us on a, a long section of Scripture. And they didn't really get a clear answer as far as when. And they don't ask here. And they don't know when, but there is the reality that it will happen. Jesus is making a date with them. Setting a date, setting a time. I'm not going to drink wine again until we drink it together in my Father's kingdom. So it is going to happen at a future date. But there's a little detail that Matthew doesn't put in here, and I'm not more inspired than Matthew. But there's supposed to be a fourth cup of wine at the Passover meal. That's the cup of acceptance or praise or what we call restoration. And from what is said here, it would appear that that cup is not partaken of by Jesus and his men here. That will be the cup that is drank in the kingdom when all is established and they drink it new. So this fourth cup gets punted until then. Then when the kingdom is in place and fulfilled... When we are accepted into his kingdom, when we are giving praise to him and all things are restored to the way that they should be, then the cup of acceptance, the cup of praise, the cup of restoration will be partaken of by Jesus and all those whom he has brought into that kingdom. But not until then. So that cup sits full at the end of the feast. Which we see the end in verse 30. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. It was customary for the Seder partakers to sing a hymn at the end of the meal. This would usually have been Psalm, Psalms 115 through 118, which is the second half of what is called the Hillel by the Jewish culture. So the hymn that they sang was not How Great Thou Art for all you Baptists out there, of which I am one, by the way. I'm sure it was how great they are because that's the best one. No, that's, not, that's not what they say. Psalm 115, 116, 117, 118 was the common way to end the Passover Seder for the common Jew. And after they sang the familiar songs, and I'm sure that they had to be looking at that cup of wine going, Jesus is like, sing, let's get out of here. And it says that they sang and they went out. To the Mount of Olives. Jesus is walking now, in this passage, to Gethsemane. Where he will labor in prayer prior to being betrayed and handed over to the religious leaders who will condemn him as a blasphemer and then they will hand him over to the Romans who will crucify him. He will die. He will be buried. And we know that he will rise again on the third day. But as, as, as you think about all these things that are about to unfold, all the anguish, all the suffering... All the crying with loud tears. This is what would have been ringing in his ears and their ears. The beginning 
of the Hillel is Psalm 115, verses 1 through 3. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Those are the words they would have started this hymn with. These are the words that would echo through their minds as they watched their plans and their dreams of a kingdom shatter as Jesus is crucified. And of course they missed it, and we would have too in their situation. But today, as we end this passage, I would call us all to remember that our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases And we see that through the crucifixion, burial, resurrection, ascension, and glorification of Jesus Christ. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Yes, indeed, he does. And it pleased God to hand his son over to die in order that we might have our sins forgiven. That we might have access to his new covenant and his eternal kingdom. It pleased God to do that. A kingdom founded on broken flesh and poured out blood. A kingdom represented in this table which depicts that body, that blood, that king, and that kingdom. And one day, because he lived, because he died, because he was buried and resurrected, this rehearsal dinner, this time of rehearsal will be over and we will drink the fruit of the vine with our Savior, our risen King, our risen Lord in His kingdom, celebrating His victory which has become our victory by grace through faith. Our God is in the heavens and He does what He pleases and this pleased Him. As will our partaking of the cup of restoration when his kingdom is established. So how do we apply this passage before we turn our attention to the table? We've got three C's this morning. Crash, control, and covenant. Crash, control, and covenant. Application point for crash I can't get through this passage without seeing, knowing, and reiterating we all have the potential to let Jesus down. We all have the potential to betray him for a morsel of bread, for a cup of stew, for 30 pieces of silver, for whatever is convenient and comfortable for us at the time. And I hope you know that. I also hope that you know that God knows that too. Do you know that God's not shocked by your sin? He ain't pleased with it, and it is sin, and it is an affront to a holy God. But He knows our frame, Psalm 103 says, that we are dust. And if you think you've reached a place in your Christian life where sin is not really a problem, where I'm not really fighting anymore, I'm doing all right, I've reached that place where I'm just good. No. You will betray your Lord for whatever is convenient and comfortable for you. You will crash and you will burn. Thank God you won't burn for eternity if you're His. 
but his people will let him down. Is it I, Lord, is an awfully good posture to approach the throne with, and then let him lift your head. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 to 13, Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Now look at this. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Listen, God knows that you're tempted to sin, and he has made a way that regardless of whatever temptation comes your way, he will give you a way of escape because he is faithful. Not because you're mature now. Not because you've got things figured out. Not because you're, you've done better for a long time or you've got a good streak going on. Our faith is not in our streaks, in our abilities, in our getting better. Our faith is in a faithful God who when we are presented with temptation will not let us be tempted above what we're able to bear. He'll provide a way of escape if we will look to Him and take the way of escape that He provides. And take heed. If you think that you're standing, if you think you got it all figured out, you're going to fall. Sin's not okay. But we're all tempted and God provides a way out. Don't let yourself crash. Don't let yourself betray your Lord. And He knows that you are tempted to do so. So look to Him for that way of escape in the midst of that temptation. So that's crash. Second is control. And this is overt in the passage today. Who was in control of everything that was going on in Jerusalem that night as Judas betrayed Jesus, as the chief priests and elders began their plans, as the Romans, who didn't even know what was going on, would wake up the next morning and and kill the Lord of glory? Who was in control of all this? Jesus Christ was in full control of all of this. Sovereignly in control in the midst of the most troubling and disturbing circumstances that this globe has ever seen. He looks Judas in the face and says, what you do, you do quickly. And Satan enters into Judas and Judas goes out and says, they're going to the Mount of Olives, meet them there, and I'm going to give him a kiss. The one whom I kiss is the guy that you're looking for. And Jesus looks him in the eye and says, go and get that done quickly. Jesus is in control of the whole situation. He's in control of this situation. He's in control of this situation and this situation and that situation. And masks and viruses and politics. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Sovereignly in control. Psalm 1830, this God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for those, for all those who take refuge in Him. Not only does God do what He pleases, everything that He does is perfect. 
And he is sovereignly in control of your life and everything going on in the world from eternity past into eternity future. And we say blithely so many times, God's in control. Inside we're going, I think. And the scripture says, this God, his way is perfect. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. And he is sovereignly in control of every atom in the universe. So when you doubt that, when you wonder, when things aren't going the way you think that they should go, go to him and rest in his control. God, you have got this and I do trust you. I don't understand it. I don't like it. But I know that you're in control of it. So I'm going to trust in your sovereignty. Even as you go to a cross and lay your life down for me. Control. Jesus firmly in control of the situation. Crash, control, and finally, covenant. Jesus that night established the new covenant with his people with his disciples. This new covenant was foretold many times in the Old Testament. Here's a clear indicator of it in Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin. Give me that covenant. I want that one. And he says, you got it. Romans 4. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith, Abraham's faith, was counted to him as righteousness. But the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in Him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. What we remember today with Jesus' resurrection as we look back at the cross and we look back at the resurrection, Jesus was delivered over for our trespasses, my sins, placed in the body of Christ, God punishing my sins in the body of Christ, taking those sins, laying them in a tomb, saying, you stay there. And then calling to His Son, His perfect Son, His sinless Son, His glorified Son and says, you come out. And then he places me in this resurrected Christ, giving me his resurrection life, establishing a new covenant with me because I'm all new now. A gift of grace from a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God who establishes his covenant with me through the body of Christ, through the blood of Christ. And he says, here, take it. This is my body. Take drink. This is my blood, which is poured out for the remission of sins for many. 
For I received from the Lord, Paul said, what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And that is the new covenant that he established that night when he was betrayed and that we partake of now as we look back at the, at the resurrection glory and power of Jesus Christ. Death could not hold him. Even my sins could not defeat him. But Christ called out of the grave, resurrected and glorified, now ascended and seated at the right hand of God in the place of power. And I have been caused to have been seated with him there by the mighty working of a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. Give me that covenant. And let's celebrate that covenant as we come to the table and remember and rehearse Everything that we've heard today, that first Lord's table that celebrated that first Passover and that establishes a point that we look forward to the restoration and the culmination of this covenant and of this kingdom when we are called into glory to sit and to worship God forever, made holy, made whole by the blood, by the body of Christ. So, Will, would you come and lead us in this time at the table? And let's celebrate this wonderful, powerful story of resurrection and coming restoration. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen.